This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Stephen says, well, guys, I got to tell you, first of all, I don't think we need the temple to find God. Abraham met God. He didn't have the temple. God was with Joseph in Egypt. He didn't have the temple. God met Moses out in the wilderness, and there was no temple there. And even after the temple was built, God told Isaiah that God does not dwell in a house made with hands. So you can confine God to a box, no matter how beautiful that box is, God doesn't dwell there. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hey there, my name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Pastor Jeff is about to continue in his series from the book of Acts. In chapters six and seven, we read the account of a man named Stephen, who was a passionate apostle of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit and God's grace. The message reflects on how it only takes one. Here's Pastor Jeff with today's message. We are in a series in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn over to Acts 7. But we've been asking the question, how is it that a group of uneducated fishermen could literally change the entire world? How could a man, uh, the son of a carpenter from a little village called Nazareth, grow up, start a three-year teaching ministry, inspire 12 fishermen, or not all were fishermen, but disciples who were uneducated, and then go out and and literally transform the Greco-Roman world, the most powerful empire up until that day? And we've looked at some things like in Acts 2, the power of the Holy Spirit. They have the Spirit of God in them. Well, that's, that's an advantage. We also looked at the power of their compassion. Up until the time of the Christians, the weak uh, and those who were broken were cast aside, but the Christ followers came along and took them in, and uh, in many cases would nurse them to health and would give them the things they needed, even though they themselves were not wealthy people by any means. So you have the power of the Spirit, the compassion that they gave in community of supporting each other. But let me tell you something, and this is going to be, just let me give you a warning This message is advanced Christianity. This is an advanced class. Okay, so you're moving past the uh, elementary things into, okay, this is the way that it really is. And I'll be the first to tell you, sometimes we pastors kind of want to tell you things that make you feel good, but they're not necessarily true. So then you get out in the world and experience the real world. You think, wait a minute, how can I harmonize what Pastor Jeff told me with what I'm experiencing right now? Because the number one, perhaps the number one advantage to the Christ follower, as far as them being able to change the known world, was the way that they suffered. The response to the way they suffered. 
Now, folks, I've noticed in the past 10 years of my preaching that I've become very good at platitudes. You know what platitude is, right? Something that's useless. It's when you're really hurting really badly, and some pastor comes along and says, well, if the outlook is bad, try the uplook. <laughs> what? Or if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. You know, what good does that really do? I also noticed that I have my favorite symbols when we talk about the difficulties, pain, and suffering of life. Uh, I love this rope. I think in 2010, I dedicated an entire weekend to these little symbols. And there's truth to the symbols. This rope reminds me, for instance, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, where King Nebuchadnezzar passed an edict that if you don't bow down to this 90-foot statue, well, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Well, you say, well, I know the rest of that story, and they were thrown in the furnace, but they weren't harmed, so that doesn't really apply to me. Well, wait a second. As soon as King Nebuchadnezzar passed this edict, imagine the conversation that would have gone on between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their families. They probably met numerous times to decide what they're going to do when they're asked to bow down to the statue. They would have told their wives and kids, look, we're going to die, because there's no way we're going to commit adultery. There's no way we're going to commit idolatry as well. We're not going to cheat on God. We're not going to do this. We are monotheistic people. Nebuchadnezzar has put us in a position where we cannot bow down to a false idol. So they look at their wives and their kids and they say, we're going to die. And they march out knowing that if they're caught not bowing down to the idol, that they're going to be thrown down into the furnace. And they are. But as you go through the passage, you learn they are thrown in the furnace, but they're not burned. They're not singed. And the writer goes to great lengths to tell us, hair not singed, clothes not singed or burned. And then he tells us that the only thing that was burned in the fire was the ropes that were binding them. And I've used that example a thousand times that if you want to really meet Jesus and know who he is, you're going to only do that in the fire. And there are some things in you that have to be burned off that are only going to be burned off when you go through the fire. God's trying to burn off your lesser loves so that you will know he's all that you really and truly need. So that's true. I mean, it's not a platitude. It is true when you go through difficult times. You don't know what God is trying to burn off that's binding you from enjoying him to the ultimate and abundant degree. I have another little symbol here. I like this. It's a weight. I've never, well, I know the answer. Why do we pay a gym membership to go and punish ourselves? Think about it. We give somebody else money to go and hurt ourselves. And we do it regularly. Well, it's because we understand the dynamic of muscles. And that is, if you tear them down, then they build back up. And so this imagery is used in the Bible. In fact, we're told that God is the potter and we're the clay. So there are times when God has to sharpen us a little bit. He has to break us a little bit in order to build us back up. That's also true. And anybody who's been through any kind of difficult season in life knows that on the other side, there's usually a sweet victory. But that's not true for everyone because some people struggle with a disease that eventually kills them. They die and they're Christians. Some people lose their job, they never get it back. Some people lose a relationship, it's never repaired. So there's some truth in this, some truth that is encouraging truth. In fact, there's a lot of truth in this. God does need the fire to burn off things that are binding us. God does need us to go through difficult times in order to break us, to build us up again. And then I love this illustration of the goldfish. My daughter had a goldfish when we lived in West Covino, and its eye was infected, and the other goldfish, what do they do when the goldfish eye is infected? The other goldfish come and start biting it and eating at it. So I knew they were going to kill this goldfish unless I took the goldfish out of the bowl and quarantined it and then gave it medicine and healing. 
Well, as soon as I reached my hand down in there, that thing started going crazy. Why? I don't speak goldfish. I can't tell the goldfish, I'm actually trying to save your life. Be still. Well, God's the same way. He puts out his hand on you because he sees something of greater disaster coming. So he does something to you right now, maybe quarantine you from a girl, from a guy, from a job, from something that's going to destroy you. You've lost it. You pray that you get it back. You don't get it back. You think God's trying to kill you. In fact, he's trying to save your life. All of those things are true. But what is the problem, folks? Let's just get it out there and be honest. What's the problem? You don't know which dynamic is happening. You don't know from what angle your pain and suffering's coming. And then there's this fourth illustration that none of us like because the Bible also says sometimes what happens to you isn't God at all. It's not even the devil. It's a fallen world. Somebody makes a decision that impacts you. God didn't do it. They did it. It's called free will. And you have to suffer the consequences. You with me? That's a hard one to take, though, isn't it? Because if you believe that's the angle at which suffering is coming, whew, man, how do you deal with that? Because it, it seems so random. Nobody likes randomness. I want to know there's purpose in this. And maybe I'll be able to endure it. Well, in those times... You tend to ask this question, well, Pastor Jeff, what good is God then? Let's just be honest. If I can't depend on God to keep my job, help me keep my job, get the girl, get the guy, get married, open my womb so that I can have a child, protect me from... I want fire protection. I want suffering protection. And if God doesn't give me that, what good is he? Why, why would I even do this? You know what Acts 7 is going to show you? I told you this is advanced leadership training here. It's going to show you you're asking the wrong question. It's the wrong question. Let me tell you the story. It is a long story that I need to summarize. It's Acts chapter 7. It's the story of Stephen. He's a young preacher, very young, probably in his 20s. He's a deacon. He's a dynamic preacher. He's pulled up before the Sanhedrin court because the court controls the content of what is preached in the temple. They don't like Stephen's content. So in Acts chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, that sets up Acts 7, the Bible says, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So they arrest Stephen. Verse 7, then the high priest asks Stephen, point blank, are these charges true? Now, what are the charges? Number one, are you speaking against the temple, Stephen? And number two, are you speaking against the law? And as you go through this long speech in chapter 7, that all is going to answer this question of pain and suffering in our lives. But if you don't do the hard work here, it's not going to make any sense. Stephen says, well, guys, I got to tell you. First of all, I don't think we need the temple to find God. Abraham met God. He didn't have the temple. God was with Joseph in Egypt. He didn't have the temple. God met Moses out in the wilderness, and there was no temple there. And even after the temple was built, God told Isaiah that God does not dwell in a house made with hands. So you can confine God to a box, no matter how beautiful that box is, God doesn't dwell there. Now, this would have created a problem for the people Stephen was preaching to, because they would say, well, 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 wait a minute. If there's no temple, where do we offer sacrifices? Because the temple is the place where we take the sacrifice. The priest offers it on our behalf. Our sins are forgiven so that we can come near to God and have relationship and fellowship with him. If there's no temple, where do we sacrifice? How do we have relationship with God? 
So first, Stephen says, well, first of all, you can meet with God without the temple. And second, here's his basic argument. You don't keep the law anyway. (laughs) You say, we need the law. You don't keep it anyway. And he traces the history of the people of Israel. He says, under Moses, you didn't obey the law. Under Aaron, you didn't obey the law. Under Amos, you didn't obey the law. And Stephen says, I agree. The law is good. I believe in the law. It is important. It's uh, inviolable. But the fact of the matter is, you don't obey it. So if your confidence is going to the temple and obeying the law, man, you're in deep trouble. Now, you know how, guys, when your wife says something to you that kind of hurts, does that ever happen to you? No? Can you talk to my wife for me, ladies? Does your wife ever say something? It's like a dagger goes in and you think it's over, but it's not. And then she twists it a bit. You know what? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Because we guys would never do that. But Stephen gives this speech about, hey, you, you don't need the temple for God, and you, you, you don't keep the law even though you think you're saved by it. You, you break it. Then he adds insult to injury by saying, and by the way, every time God sends you a deliverer or a savior, you kill him. Joseph was appointed by God to save his family, yet his family sold him into slavery in Egypt. Moses was appointed by God to serve and save his people, yet as soon as he asserted himself, they rejected him, and he had to flee into the wilderness to save his own life. David later on will be appointed to be king over the Israelites, to lead the people, yet for much of his life he's a fugitive, living in the wilderness, fighting for his own life. Stephen says every single time God sends you a prophet or a deliverer or a savior, he's rejected and persecuted. And he says, fellow Israelites, you've got a very bad track record concerning the temple, the law, and the prophets. So if that's where you put your trust and hope, man, you're dead in the water. And then he closes his speech in Acts 7, verse 51. Show you the courage this young preacher had. He says, you stiff-necked people, that's not a compliment. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. So Stephen says, you've cut your flesh in circumcision, but you've never been cut to the heart. You ought to know by now, your problem is not outward, it's inward. You need a new heart, man, because whatever you're doing is not working. And then he gives the summary, listen now, of the whole speech. He says in Acts 7, 52, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. Now, out of all the terms Stephen could have used to refer to Jesus, he chose one that you don't find anywhere else in Scripture, at least not in capital letters. He refers to Jesus as the righteous one. Now, what is that? Okay. All right. Right out here is a stop sign. When you get to the stop sign, you have one of two choices. You can either stop and say, you know, the law of the stop sign is good. Or you can run right through it. And if you run right through it and get caught then a policeman's going to pull you over and write you a ticket. That's too real for some of you, isn't it? I see the cops out here all the time pulling somebody over. I see CCV bumper stickers on the back of the car all the time. And when I go by you, I just do this. I don't want to embarrass you anymore. And so you can either stop, and if you stop, you are righteous under the law because you've obeyed the law. Or you can run it, get a ticket, and pay the ticket. And if you do pay the fine, guess what? You're also righteous under the law. You can be righteous by obeying the law or by paying the penalty for breaking it. So Stephen says, look, guys, we're all guilty. You can either keep the law. The law's good, but none of you do. Or you can pay the penalty for breaking it. 
The problem is cosmic treason, breaking the law of God, is death. And it's hard to enjoy the benefits of righteousness if you're dead. And so God did for you what you could not do for yourself. He sent his son. So you can run the stop sign. I mean, you ought to try to stop. The law is good. But if you do happen to run the stop sign in the law of God, Jesus writes your ticket for you. He went to the cross and paid the penalty that you deserve. So that Stephen says Jesus is the climax to the pattern of failure and unbelief and breaking the law of God. And suddenly, it would have dawned on them what he's teaching. Stephen is saying every redeemer, Moses, David, Joseph, delivered their people in spite of rejection and suffering. But Jesus came along and delivered his people through his rejection, pain, and suffering. And that's why we call him the righteous one. He is righteous on our behalf so that God sees us as righteous and we can go into his presence. Now, that little explanation is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion right there in a nutshell. Everything else is what are you going to do to earn your way? Jesus said, done. I already did it for you. By faith, by faith through the cross, let Jesus pay your sin debt. So that the law no longer has claim on you. That's what Stephen's saying. He is your righteous one. All because there are blessings that come from keeping the law. Jesus kept the law on your behalf. Therefore, all the blessings are yours because of what he did on the cross. So let's review. The law has been fulfilled by Christ. The temple has been restored because Jesus is the temple. Because he is the sacrifice that gives you the right to enter into the presence of God. Hebrews 4 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, let's keep going. This is where it gets good. You know, this is part of the sermon where we've done the hard work. Now we get to have some fun. Now, this is a very long speech that we summarized. Why is it recorded in Acts 7? And the question is, where would Luke have gotten the words to this speech? He wasn't there when Stephen was preaching it. And he wasn't there when Stephen is going to die later on in this passage. So how did Luke know what Stephen said? Who told him? Well, in Luke 1, we're told that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And he said, they were handed down to us by eyewitnesses. Okay, well, who's the eyewitness? Who was there that would give Luke the words of Stephen's speech? In Acts 7, verse 57, we're told... And Luke is very careful to mention the name of someone who was present during the stoning of Stephen. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, that's Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, who is Saul? Saul is going to become Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, who was a rigorous lawkeeper, who was very well educated, who was the foremost persecutor of Christians in Stephen's day, who was standing there watching Stephen die and giving approval. Okay, so how did we get this speech? Paul must have recited it to Luke. Why? Stephen's speech eventually got to him. You say, well, how do you know that? How do we know that? Theologians will tell you that all the themes of Stephen's speech are the themes of Paul's theology. 
especially in the greatest theological treaties ever written in the book of Romans. If you read the book of Romans, it is an expansion on Stephen's speech in Acts 7. It becomes the theology of Paul and the theology of Christianity that changes the world. And Stephen was young. He probably only preached one sermon in his life. Boy, it was a good one. But he died. Now that begs the question, man, why doesn't God keep Stephen alive? He's a great preacher. He could preach more good sermons. God's not very wise here. Something happened in the words of Stephen that turned Paul's world upside down. Now, at first it made Saul mad, didn't it? Because what did Paul say? What did Saul say? Let's kill him. Now, why? Because Saul's cornerstone had been broken. The thing he had built his life on was, if I keep the law, go to the temple and offer sacrifices, then I have assurance with God. The problem is, Paul still wasn't happy because he didn't feel assured. It's hard to feel assured when it's based on you because you know who you are. You with me? You say, well, Pastor Jeff, surely that's not you. You don't know who I am. You have no idea who I am. You know a little bit about me, but you don't know who I am. You're not with me 24 hours a day, and I'm not with you 24 hours a day. And I can tell you probably if you followed me around everywhere for 24 hours, you probably wouldn't listen to me. But that's okay because if I followed you around every 24 hours, I probably wouldn't talk to you. <laughs> so I know that's an oldie but a goodie. It's, we're sinners, aren't we? Saved by grace. Paul heard the words of Stephen, and he was angry because he was angry at this young punk who had such confidence that he was saved, and he knew that he was good with God, that he could stand up and preach the way that he did. Saul says, let's kill him. But even the death of Stephen, that Saul stood there, watched, and affirmed, even though Stephen died, his words that made its way into Paul's heart never died. Paul kept thinking about them over and over. But if you think it's only the listen now, if you think it's only the words of Stephen that caused the transformation in the heart of Saul who would become Paul who would change the world, no. It's the way Stephen died. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Paul would have never seen anybody die like that. Father, forgive them. I mean, they're stoning this young man. His life is, Father, forgive them. There's only one other occasion we hear of that. Who's that? Jesus. Father, forgive them. And Paul looks at this and says, forgive them? And suddenly something happened where Paul's heart is torn. Even though his cornerstone has been cracked, his heart is stirred. Maybe he starts to think for the first time that love is greater than the law. Here's a young man who is so sure of his Lord and acceptance that if his Lord requires his life for a greater good, he's willing to give it. Okay, Jeff, I got it, but what does that all have to do with my pain? You don't know what I'm going through. You say, Pastor Jeff, I know the gospel. I didn't need you to recite that again. I know the, the, the gospel of grace. I know it's about grace, and I know the righteous one. And my question to you would be, do you really? Because if you do... It will change the way you suffer. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. You may not see why these things are happening. No pastor could tell you at what angle this is coming from. But you have an infinite father who's in your corner, and he's pulling for you. He's watching you. 
He wants you to endure and persevere and trust that just because you can't see everything doesn't mean that he's not in total control of everything. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.